We're going to do Genesis chapter 5 and get into the beginning of chapter 6. This is more ground than we typically will cover through Genesis because these first 11 chapters especially are so important and so foundational to the rest of the Bible. We've been going pretty slow, but chapter 5 is a long genealogy, and then we have a one very short, very strange story at the beginning of chapter 6. Part of the difficulty with understanding these early chapters of Genesis, and by understand, I don't mean figure out what it says, but come to grips with what it says and accept that it's true. Part of what's difficult about that is the world we live in is so different. And if we are going to insist that the way things are now are the way things have always been, then we can't accept that. But we spent a bunch of time the first week in Genesis looking at how Peter teaches us that things have not always been as they are now. But there have been changes, even cataclysmic changes to the world. And so what we read in chapter 6 and in chapter 5 too is very unfamiliar to us. But we need to remember this is the dawn of time. This is the dawn of history. Every good movie about the beginning of time always has some weird stuff going on. But for whatever reason, even though we kind of get that intuitively, that if it's that far away, it would have been some different things, we get really rational or we claim to be rational. We claim to be really smart and think there's no possible way. But the Lord has shown us that is indeed how it is. The primeval world was a strange place. (laughs) And it's hard for us to accept anything that we have not experienced. But this is exactly what the Bible records for us. It's why it was recorded. But what has not changed over all these years and what this passage shows us is that sin since the very beginning has been corrupting everything. Everything that God has made, every man, every woman who has ever lived has been corrupted by sin. And that death is the destination of all men. That has not changed. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall surely die. And because we all sin, death waits for all of us. So this genealogy that we're going to see today, it's a list of births, but it's also a list of deaths, which coming at the beginning of Genesis is a rather shocking thing. But we're going to see, too, that even in the midst of a lot of bad stuff, that the possibility of walking with God remains even in the middle of all that. And that while judgment is certain, it was certain then and it's certain now, God always offers hope in the midst of judgment, always. And as Christians... We know that we are to be clinging to the hope of Jesus Christ. Why do the nations rage, the Bible says, because the Lord has already got his king. It acknowledges that the nations do rage. It gets hard. But in the middle of that, we are to cling to God and trust that he's over all of it and that he's in control and there will be a day when he will say enough's enough and set it all right. So let's read now the first chapter today. All of chapter 5, all 32 verses. Try not to get lost and drift off in the rhythm of the genealogy. Try and pay attention. Try and listen. There is some interesting stuff in here, and then we'll come back and talk about it. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. That's that word, Adam, Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years... He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth or Sheth. That's how you'd say that. 
The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh, or Enosh, how you'd say that. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh, or Enosh, 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. That would have been spelled with a Q in Hebrew, if you're interested, but still pronounced Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. That's not a Bible name you see given to newborn children very often, is it? I, I've met Seth's and Adam's and Kenan's even, but I've never met a Mahalalel, must say. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. There was no J in Hebrew, so this was Yared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Circle that one. This is significant. And believe it or not, Enoch in Hebrew is Chanuk. There's a ch at the beginning of that. The one that translated it to English decided we didn't need that letter, apparently. But yeah, Chanuk, or Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, or Methuselah. That's how you'd say that. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. We see the rhythm breaking up there. Enoch walked with God. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. What? That's it? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We'll come back to that. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. This is a different Lamech from the really grumpy one we met in the last chapter. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Methuselah holds the world record for longest living person. So you can circle him. Methuselah, 969 years. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, or Noach, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, that's chapter 5. This is our second division according to the Hebrew word Toledoth. It's really the third division, but it's the second one that begins with that Hebrew word Toledoth, which means generations. You see it there in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. 
Not going to get into this, but it is significant. This is the only time where it says this is the book of the generations. Usually it just says these are the generations. So it's possible that there was a there was a traditional written source that Moses, when he compiled Genesis, had in his hands. If he did, that's pretty cool because it tells us that this is not something he's making up. This is something that they've preserved for a long time. But we'll move on from that. Toledoth. There are 11 of these in the book of Genesis, and we're going to make our way to the end of this section tonight. We had a short genealogy in the last chapter of the sons of Cain in the previous chapter. Cain had seven generations of children that are recorded because, as we know, in chapter 6 and 7, they're going to be wiped out by the flood. So that's all he had. But this is the first major genealogy in the book of Genesis. We're going to have another major genealogy in chapter 10, spilling over into chapter 11. And these are the famous begats that everybody hates when they read through the Bible. You say, I'm going to read through the Bible in one year. And then you get here and you go, oh, come on. And we might have a desire to skip over that. But as I was trying to draw out, there are several important lessons and stories to be gleaned from these passages. Learning where somebody came from, where their history is, can be very interesting. I learned my own family tree not too long ago. If, <laughs> it was actually funny how it got started. We were at my house with the college group back in Virginia, and one of the friends we were talking to, somehow we started talking about the mafia. And he goes, oh, yeah, man, my family's all mobbed up. I'm like, yeah, right. Every person with an Italian last name says that. It's not true, whatever. And he goes, no, 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 seriously, Google it. And so we Googled his family name. And sure enough, there's newspaper clippings. And he's got a Wikipedia article and stuff. I'm like, that's your granddad? He goes, yeah, man. And I said, do you know him? He says, oh, no, we don't talk to him. <laughs> so that got us all thinking, who are we related to? So we started looking this up. And I struck gold because you have to kind of fight and claw your way to make sure it's the right person. But there was somebody way back in the day, like 1910, who had finished my genealogy for me uh, because I was able to get it and connect it to that book. They had taken it all the way back to like the 1100s. It was pretty crazy. So I was able to follow this through and not like, oh, my second cousin was related to William the Conqueror. You know, everybody has that in there. But my father's father and his father, and it was cool. My family were, were crusaders that won titles in England from Germany. So that's why we have a German last name, but none of us are German <laughs> because they, they won titles in England. But then we saw that they became Puritans. When that revival was sweeping through the country, they became Puritans and were persecuted for it, lost all their titles, and were sent over to what is then Massachusetts, but is now Connecticut. They ended up leaving that, joining a Moravian community. If you know anything about Moravians, they were pacifists. They refused to fight in the revolution, and we found these little things where they were taken to court for refusing to fight when Pennsylvania called them up to fight and they had to haul logs and all this kind of stuff. And after that, they moved to Ohio, which is where a lot of the Moravians went. There was one member of my Moravian family who apparently, as far as we can tell, was sick and tired of the pacifism, joined up with the Union and fought during the Civil War. And then my family bounced around all over the place until finally we wound up in California where we had enough family memory to pick up the story. And that's where God got a hold of us again. And there's a great story there. But me thinking through all that is like, okay, at least as far as I, I can tell, the Lord has had his hand on my family and we've had really high highs and really low lows. And there's something interesting about that. But the, the cool thing to know about this, what we can learn from this genealogy, because who cares about me? The Bible treats Adam, Seth, 
Noah, Methuselah, treats them as real people who lived during a time, who lived in a place, and who have descendants who are still alive to this day. In Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy of Jesus, which goes all the way back to Adam. So if you want to say that Adam was just a legendary figure that somebody made up, the gospel writers did not think so. And it makes you wonder, why would you say that? We have a list of all their children that's been maintained for a really long time. And this has proven to be very persuasive. We don't really so much care about that kind of thing here, but in Nepal, our, our friend Nanda, who's a pastor there, he was convinced, among other things, that Jesus was the true Messiah and the Son of God because we had his genealogy. And he grew up in Hinduism where everything was, you know, the, the universe had a hiccup and then out came this God and then this God had a child with a monkey and then now there he is. And he's like, I knew all those stories were ridiculous. And then I come here and it's like, hold on, Jerusalem's a real place. These are real people. There's a genealogy. This is something legitimate. And it's led to the conversion of not just him, but a lot of other people. And there's another significant reason for these genealogies. Remember back in 3 verse 15, the Lord said that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. So this is maintaining the line of promise. We're keeping track. Remember the Lord said to Eve, you're going to have a child who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So the writers of the Bible are helping us keep track of that line. And it, of course, all culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of Noah and Seth and Adam. Every key point where the Lord says to one descendant or another, the line is coming through you. Jesus lines up with every single one of those points. If he had been from the tribe of Manasseh, he couldn't have been the Messiah. Because the Messiah was supposed to be the son of David, who was of the tribe of Judah. We have his genealogy. It's important. And it's also going to be important because of what we see in chapter 6. But it legitimizes his claim as the son of God and the king of Israel. Now in Genesis chapter 5, we have 10 generations from Adam to Noah. There's 10 generations. And then in Genesis 11, from Shem, who is the son of Noah, to Abraham, there's also 10 generations. So 10 and 10. Now this has raised some questions that I'll bring up to you. The question really is, is this a coincidence or was the genealogy recorded in such a way to give us round numbers? This does not mean, are we asking, is this a true or a false genealogy? This is a question of, of style and the way it was written. We ask this because a lot of ancient genealogies, including ones in the Bible, as I'll demonstrate in a second, they will skip generations. So they'll say, this man was the father of this man, when in reality maybe he was the grandfather of that man. It's not that they weren't related or that we're making people up, but for whatever reason, they're condensing the story. And we have examples of that in Scripture. You're kind of giving the highlights of the genealogy, the significant children. We've seen some of that. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 8, in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Joram was the father of Uzziah. We know from Kings and Chronicles that Joram was actually the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. Now, we will refer to my fathers, right? The fathers who have gone before me. So it's not inaccurate to say he was the father of Uzziah, but that's not the way we typically use the English word father. But the Bible wasn't written in English, so we've got to try and connect the cultures as much as we can. We know that 
in verse 11 of Matthew 1 as well. It skips over Jehoiakim, and that's where Matthew gives his 14, 14, and 14, that there was 14 from Jesus to the exile, 14 from the exile to David, and 14 from David to Abraham. He's trying to give us round numbers. That was a stylistic thing. We don't really do it that way. Maybe it was to help people remember how to remember the genealogy of Jesus. So the question becomes, did anything like that happen here? And this is relevant because there are people that have tried to get a definite date of the age of the earth based on these genealogies. So it's an important question. So I think, here's what we say. It is possible that that happened here, but there's absolutely no way to confirm that that's what happened here. You could say was, I don't know, let's just use an example. Could we say that Noah was Lamech's grandson instead of his son? It doesn't say that. So it's very difficult for us to then say, well, there must be extra generations. And those who want to say that typically are those who want to make room for millions of years of evolution and say, well, we're just skipping things over. I'm positive that is not happening here. What we can say, in fairness, is that trying to come to an absolutely certain date for the age of the earth based on these genealogies alone, I don't know if you can have an absolute certainty. I think you get pretty close. But I think to be dogmatic about it is to be, uh, I, I think that's to go beyond what the text gives. I don't really have an ax to grind on this issue. There are some that really do, and they really want to lean into certain datings. Uh, Bishop Usher is the famous one that dated the world. He did great work, but I think sometimes people want to hang too much on that. And what they're trying to do often is to defend against people that want to force millions of years in here. We don't need to pick one or the other. I think it's, it's fair for us to say there could be more going on here, but there's nothing in the text that would prove or disprove that. It's one thing to say he was his grandson. It's another thing to say they were separated by five million years. That, that's a little much, I think. Skip over five million years worth of grandparents. Yeah, so we're not going to worry about that. I, I think the thing is when people say, well, 10 and 10, th there's obviously a plot here. I am not that guy. The Bible is very clear that certain numbers are significant. God uses round numbers a lot. He uses the number 40 a lot. You're going to be 40 years in the wilderness. There's going to be 40 years of judgment or 40 days in the desert, Jesus was. Or seven is a significant number, especially read the book of Revelation. A lot of people want to take Revelation and say, well, because he's using these round special numbers, we know it's not real. Well, hold the phone. You don't know, you don't know that for sure. So... Yeah, if, if that bothers you, then I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have anything to worry about there. God seems to like certain numbers more than others. But just thought I'd bring that out. But here's the other significant thing. The ages of these people. Most of these guys live to be almost 1,000 years old. How in the world is that possible? Now, I remember, here's a story, one of those weird memories that sticks in your brain. My first job first real job was at a place called the Porter House. It was a fine dining restaurant. I worked in the kitchens and I worked bussing tables. And I remember when you're waiting for everyone to close up and there's always one couple that's like waiting until like three in the morning and doesn't want to go home. So we're just, you know, hanging around the bar talking and somehow this conversation turned to religion and somebody said, I don't understand how those people can be so old in the Bible. It says they're like 900 years old. And somebody goes, well, they counted years differently back then. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And I, I didn't say anything. I'm not sure why I didn't. Probably because I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. <laughs> it's like, apparently this expert just knows they counted years differently. No, they didn't. They knew what a year was. 
They knew how to calculate the time it took the sun to go around the world. So we can dispense with that. And, and, and also, I want to dispense with the idea, well, this is just legend. They didn't actually live that long. These are just legendary figures. And people always want to do this. They'll say, the Bible is just like all this other Babylon and everything else. They all had legends of people living a long time too. Let me give you an example of one of those things. There is a Sumerian legend, contemporary about to the time of the Bible being written. And it's giving the genealogy of its kings. Now, you think these guys lived a long time. According to the Sumerian document, its kings were living between 43,000 and 65,000 years each. So, okay, yeah, they're both living longer than we're used to, but one of those things is a little excessive, shall we say. So when you want to try to compare, you're not really comparing apples with apples. You're comparing, this person lived for 65,000 years. Okay, I think I'm not going to listen to you anymore. But it does seem here that in the pre-flood era, before God flooded the world, the nature of man and the nature of the earth itself allowed for greater longevity. We're going to see after the flood, it's going to start going down, and it's going to go down pretty quickly. Noah is only going to live to be 600. By the time we get to Abraham, 10 generations later, he's only going to live to 200. Jacob is only going to live to 130. Moses to 120. There's a rapid decline. In fact, in Genesis 47, 9, it's kind of funny. Jacob is complaining about how long he's lived. Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. When we get to the end of Genesis, you'll see Jacob is this really like complaining old man. All these things are against me. He says, and Pharaoh says, how old are you, sir? Well, I'm 130. Haven't lived very long. Not even close to what my grandfather lived to be. And so it's interesting, the fact that the Bible hangs a hat on that, that the ages have declined and people are aware of that. And then by the time you reach Psalm 90, there's that famous verse that the days of his years are 70 or 80 by reason of strength. The Bible is aware that a loss has occurred. And I do not presume to know the scientific details of why people could live this long because the Bible doesn't give them to us. The most popular theory on this is what's called the canopy theory, that because there was waters above and waters below, the Bible says that the earth was in this sort of tropical dome, but then the flood, all that water fell down, and so we were exposed to the radiation from the sun and so on. I think that's possible. I'm not entirely convinced of that, as we said when we were going through the first couple chapters, because I think that when it says the waters are above, it says that the stars and the planets were placed in the waters above. So I think that's more a reference to the extent of the universe. But I could be wrong. The point is I don't know. But I think what is clear is that whatever happened when the flood rocked the world, when you began to have ice ages and that sort of thing, it brought all kinds of trouble on the earth. And people stopped living as long. And it seems that animals stopped growing as big. Whatever God did seems like he was trying to restrain the sin of man, and that's exactly what he did. Main thing to understand, again, coming back to 2 Peter, when he said that things were different then. You can't say that things have always been the same way because they haven't been. The brevity of our lives, 70, 80, 90 years, sometimes you go, man, it just feels so short. Well, that's not what God intended it to be. 
And it rings throughout this passage like a funeral bell. He died. He died. He died. This is what God said in Genesis 2.17. He said, the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Adam died. And these men would have known each other. Like, if there's no gaps here, and I tend to think that there's not, Adam would have been able to live even to the time of Lamech. These guys would have known each other for centuries. Can you imagine what it was like for Lamech to watch Adam die? The first man who knew the story of God in the garden to see him die? That would have been an earth-shattering thing. It could have been why he spoke the way he did when his son was born after watching the first father die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Even faithful people have to endure the judgment for what they've done in the body, and that's through death. But in the middle of this big, long cycle, we have this fascinating little story about Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. Enoch did not die. It says he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's interesting. This is unique in Scripture. This is a pre-rapture rapture. This is him walking with God, and then all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. Hebrews gives us a little more light here. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. When Enosh was born, we read in the last chapter, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But Enoch walked with God like nobody else. Their fellowship was so close, God took him away early. Man, what, what must that have been like? Enoch walking with God, and then God finally saying, You know what, Enoch? Why don't you just come on up here? Why don't you stay a while? They'll be fine. They'll be fine. You come stay with me. God took him away early. Very similar to how Elijah was taken up early in 2 Kings chapter 2 when the chariot of fire came and took him away and only Elisha got to see it. This has given rise, and I promised myself, I have it in my notes, that I would not talk much about this, but it is possible that Enoch and Elijah, because they're the only two who never died, are the two witnesses that Revelation chapter 11 talks about. But it says in Revelation there are two witnesses that are going to preach to the whole world and they're going to be God's voice during that time and that they're going to be killed but they're going to be raised from the dead and that their death is going to signal like, okay, we're getting serious now. It's going to get much worse. People have also speculated Elijah and Moses, but Enoch and Elijah are the only two we know of who did not die. So it makes a little bit of sense. I don't think we can be dogmatic about it. But just as we're sitting here speculating about Enoch, there is a lot of speculation and tradition that has grown up around Enoch. And it led to what is called the Book of Enoch from the intertestamental period. It was written between Malachi and Matthew. It's not scripture. It was certainly not written by Enoch himself. <laughs> but it's referred to and even quoted in the New Testament. Jude verses 14 and 15. Have you ever wondered about this verse? Jude writes, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is a quote from the book of Enoch. 
which is not in the canon of Scripture. But apparently, some of that tradition that had built up around Enoch was accurate. And the Lord inspired Jude to include a piece of it. And what that tells us is that Enoch was not just a godly man, but that he was a prophet. He was speaking to the world while the line of Cain was degenerating farther and farther. And you can assume, too, a lot of Adam's descendants as well, or Seth's descendants, that Enoch was speaking to them that judgment is coming. seems that Lamech understood this, too, because he gives his son the name Noah, which means relief or comfort or rest even. He's saying, I hope that the Lord will use this boy to bring us some rest some comfort, some relief from everything we're suffering. Even in this chapter, death, warnings of judgment, the rapture of Enoch gives us hope, as will Noah's Ark. We're going to talk about that next time. It gives us hope that God does not punish the just with the unjust. God does not punish righteous people alongside unrighteous people. Noah was saved out of the flood. Enoch was taken away before the flood came. We Christians have a similar hope. We actually have hope of a rapture too. 1 Corinthians 15, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some of us are going to die and be raised from the dead. Some of us, the Lord is going to do like he did with Enoch and just take us up to be with him, to escape the wrath of God, just as he did with Noah. There's a long pattern of that in Scripture, which we'll look at another time. But if there's a lesson that you take from this, take this lesson. Walk with God in the midst of a world of sin. We're about to discuss the horrible things that were going on. The weird, perverted, demonic things that were going on. But in the middle of all that, Enoch was so righteous, God decided to rapture him early. Well, I can't live righteous. The world is so dark around me. There's so much pressure. There's so much temptation. Enoch walked with God, and so can you. That might mean you have to distance yourself from the world. Okay. Walk with God. Know God. And not, by the way, not out of disgust with the world. Oh, I can't take those people anymore. I'm going over here. I'm going to go see you, God. I'm sure God would love that attitude. <laughs> the Lord says, come closer to me. And you say, oh, Lord, I want to walk with you. So even though during this time corruption was escalating, the prophets were warning of impending judgment, there was hope. There was hope through what happened to Enoch. Lamech named his son in hope that God would use him, and he, of course, did. There was hope for the individual to rise above his generation. I could preach just that. Maybe I will someday. The individual is able to rise above his generation by the power of God, rise above his family, rise above his culture, rise above the times in which he lives. Because God always offers the hope of salvation before judgment comes. Okay, now let's get to the good stuff, so to speak. It's actually the, the bad stuff, but it's a very interesting passage. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 6. I will not lie to you. This is one of the passages that I got excited about when I was thinking, I want to do Genesis next. So let's do it. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, or contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, 
and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay. This is certainly a candidate for one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. And there are a lot of weird ideas about the Nephilim. Don't even bother Googling. There, I mean, from aliens to weird demon stuff, and then they want to point to this person might be a Nephilim. Watch out for him. Like, really, it's very strange. Let's just think biblically. That's enough. There's plenty to keep us busy. It says, The sons of God saw the daughters of man and married them, and that the Nephilim were born of these unions, the mighty men, the men of renown. There are three theories of what this means. And in my opinion, the first two are just attempts to avoid the obvious conclusion from this passage. So let's go through the first two very quickly. Number one, the sin here was polygamy. That the sons of God is a reference to the kings that lived on the earth. And that they were taking just wife after wife after wife and they were out of control. Like Lamech back in chapter 4. The other one is that this sin was intermarriage. The sons of God is a reference to the line of Seth. And then the daughters of men are the daughters of the line of Cain. So the godly Sethites should have known better than to marry with the Cainites, but they did anyway, and they shouldn't have done that. Kind of like not being equally yoked, you understand. I think both of these views are very faulty. They take the term sons of God and they blow it up to mean basically whatever they want it to mean. And neither one of them explains why Nephilim were born out of these unions. Why in the world would a king having lots of wives lead to giants being born? And it also doesn't explain why did God see this as the last straw before he sent the flood? You've got to have something that is so heinous that it makes God go, that's it, we're starting over. I think the obvious answer from the Bible, as hard as it may be for us to come to grips with, that the sons of God are fallen angels who bred with human women and gave birth to monstrous offspring with demon blood. You're like, okay, the Bible just got interesting. <laughs> Let's look at this term here, the sons of God. This is bene Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of God. Almost always when that term is used, it's referring to the angelic host, especially in the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and 2 says, When all the sons of God assembled themselves before the Lord, Satan also appeared. He's talking about the angels in heaven. B'nai Elohim. And I think the clearest verse to give you this picture is Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7. It says, Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, the ESV translates it, B'nai Elohim, is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. So it says that God is in a council. He's in a, a court, like a heavenly royal court of B'nai Elohim, sons of God, angels. In Job 38, verse 7, it says that the B'nai Elohim shouted for joy at creation. Well, who was there at creation? It wasn't people. In Psalm 82, verse 6, the Lord says, I have called you gods, little g, gods, to the B'nai Elohim. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, it says that God divided the nations according to the number of the B'nai Elohim. 
These are those principalities and powers that Paul talks about. Daniel talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and the prince of Israel. It's very obviously talking about angels here. The text itself is not difficult. Having to accept that it's true maybe is more so. But it's the word of God, so we have no choice. So knowing that, we read that these angels took wives from among men and gave birth to the Nephilim from the word nafal in Hebrew, which means to fall. So Nephilim means the fallen ones. And it says these are the heroes of old. The Septuagint, which is the official Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates that as giants. These are ungodly, half-human, half-demon creatures. Now, some people want to oppose that on theological grounds, which, okay, we can entertain that for a second. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty 30, that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And this says here that these angels were taking wives. And aren't angels spirits? Well, first of all, they weren't supposed to marry and they weren't supposed to take wives. This was wrong for them to do this. And these are rebellious, fallen angels. And I don't know exactly what the mechanics were here, but these angels had some kind of body. This could have been possession, but I don't think so. We see later on when some angels are going to meet with Abraham, these angels are going to eat. So obviously they are capable of interacting with the physical world. All I can tell you is what it says. And it says they had sexual relations with women. It was not what God intended. It was an abomination. Which is why, in verse 3, the Lord declares his intention to abandon humanity. My spirit shall not, it says, abide with men. It also can be translated strive with men. Some of these older Hebrew books, the, the language is tough for us to translate sometimes. But the point is, God's like, forget it. I'm not putting up with this. And he sets a deadline for their judgment. His days will be 120 years. It's going to culminate in the flood, which we will read about next time. And he says there really briefly, he says, I shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. Why does the fact that he is flesh serve as a reason for God to abandon them? I think what could be going on here, could be, is that by saying he is flesh, the Lord is rebuking what man is trying to do with these angels. It could have been less a romantic thing and more similar to the temptation that the devil gave to Eve in the garden when he said, you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. That could be a similar temptation to what's happening here because the text does not speak of rape in that sense. This is marriage going on. So it could be that the, the line of temptation here was, we're going to have children that will be half man, half God, and they'll slowly rise and become something new and greater. And God goes, you're flesh. I made you flesh. And you trying to seize what does not belong to you is not right. That could be it. But people reach a point where God stops striving with them and departs from them in judgment. Romans chapter 1 talks about that, where the Lord gave them up. Ezekiel chapter 9 talks about the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. So this is happening. This is strange, and it's a little weird. But I want you to see something else. This is very important. In verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. After what? After the flood. 
Now, this has become interesting even more. Because this sin was not reserved to before the flood, but it says it continued afterward. This is why when the children of Israel come to the promised land and they see the giants, they're so afraid. Because these giants were also the wicked offspring of men and demons. Numbers 13.33 says, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. So the great-granddaddy of all these Nephilim was named Anak. So they were called the Anakim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. In the Old Testament, they use other names for them. These are, I guess, different tribes of uh, Nephilim, but you see them referred to as the Emim, the Rephaim is a common one, the Zuzim, and the Anakim. And you want to know something crazy that will hopefully excite you about your Bible? But we have extra biblical evidence for giants living in the land of Israel before Israel got there. There is an Egyptian book from ancient Egypt, like when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, called The Craft of the Scribe. And it's giving a a kind of a travelogue of the different regions that surround Egypt. And it gives a warning about the land of Israel. It has a different name, but that's who it's talking about. Because it says that the sons of Anak live there. And listen to this description. That pass in Shasu is dangerous. Some of these men are four or five cubits tall, nose to foot, with wild faces. Four or five cubits, that's six foot ten to eight foot seven. So there were books written in Egypt that said when you go through the land of Canaan, there are people called the Anakim that are enormous and they will stomp you into the ground. So watch out for those guys. That's not scripture. That's just archaeology. Now, people want to hear that and say, oh, well, you know, some people do grow very tall, and we didn't have the technology back then to stop that. No, here's the deal. When people grow very, very tall today, it's called giantism or gigantism, they grow so big that their bodies start to collapse because their, their bones can't hold them, and their, their cardiovascular systems start to fall apart. These are guys that are that big but do not have any of the attendant health problems, demonically empowered now, if we know that to be the case, does it make a little more sense why when they showed up to the promised land, God said, go into that land, men, women, and children, wipe them all out, every single one of them. Do not leave a single one of them alive. Don't touch their stuff. Don't let their cattle live. I want it all gone. We hear that and we go, wow, that's, that's really harsh, Lord. And the Lord is justified in anything he commands us to do. But when you realize these are Nephilim here, these are demon spawn living in God's promised land. He said, Joshua, get in there and destroy them. It also shows us how much of a boss Caleb really was. Because he said, I'm 80 years old and I still haven't killed one. You're sending me up into those mountains. The Lord was purging the world of this. And this is what God did. He sent the flood. He sent Israel into Canaan to put an end to it. And in Joshua chapter 11, verse 22, it says that the only Anakim left were in Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. There is a rather famous Nephilim from Gath, who you may have heard of before. That explains why these Philistine giants gave Israel so much trouble. Because they chased all of the Nephilim into the Philistine city-states. Which is why if you read through the stories of David's mighty men, they're killing giants here and there. And they were the ones that finally finished wiping all of them out. That's where Goliath came from. 
And now you can understand why Saul, who was chosen to be the king of Israel because he was so tall, head and shoulders above everybody else. Well, here comes Goliath, who is nine feet tall. It's like, yeah, we're all running for our lives here. And that also shows you why David was so full of faith. Because he's like, I'm not just fighting a big, tall dude. I'm fighting something that God has said is abomination. And he ordered us to destroy. So, yeah, of course I'm not afraid. Where's my, where's my slingshot? And it also says in this passage that the Nephilim were the men of renown. The men of old. This, I believe, although if you disagree, it's not the end of the world. But this is a possible explanation why every culture has legends of powerful half-God, half-man beings that made a whole lot of trouble. We, of course, in the Bible have Goliath. But let's look at Greek culture. Hercules, Perseus, and Theseus, all three of them were legends of somebody where a god had committed sexual acts with a woman, a human woman, and out is born this person who is crazy strong, way bigger than everybody else. If you, you know, the Disney version mellows it out a little bit. But like you read about like the actual text of Hercules and these guys that talks about them being like way head and shoulders taller than everybody else. That they're sort of living half in this earthly world and half in this world of monsters and crazy things going on. And they're always uber violent. Once again, sanitized by the Disney movies that come out. Always uber violent. Always self-indulgent. We have Hercules, Perseus, Theseus. Norse culture has Siegfried, who is the descendant of of a god and a woman. You have England, you have Merlin, who is said to be the son of a demon. Ireland has a guy named Cuchulain, who I heard about not long ago. And this was a guy who apparently when he was calm was very nice, but he would get angry and he would just rip everything in front of him to shreds. The stories he killed the woman he loved and all this stuff. And oh, how tragic. But what the Bible is giving us is not confirming those stories necessarily, but saying this happened. There were crazy demon spawn people that were bigger than everybody else, stronger than everybody else, could rip things apart, perform incredible crazy feats of strength, and it was an abomination to the Lord. But it's just interesting, whenever you see how every culture has a flood story, and every culture has stories of the Nephilim like that, it just makes you go, is there anything to that? Well, the Bible tells us that there may be something to that. Well, why don't we see this today? Well, because as I just told you, God took very special pains to put a stop to this. And the New Testament shows us that God reserved a very special punishment for the angels that did this. And that someday, as part of his judgment, God is going to turn those angels loose on the earth again. These are verses that you should write down and put in the margins of this passage. Jude verse 6 says that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So according to these passages here, 
These were sinful, rebellious angels who went beyond their proper dwelling and have been imprisoned, it says, in a dark, gloomy place. It said in 2 Peter, use the word hell, but that's the Greek word Tartarus, which corresponds to the abyss. Do you remember when Jesus was encountering the man who had the legion of demons? And he confronts them and tells them to come out, and they fall to their knees and begin to beg, please, don't send us into the abyss. Please, send us into the pigs. We'll just go to the pigs. Apparently, the abyss is a demon prison that caused this legion of demons to shake in their boots, and they would rather go into the pigs. The abyss, the bottomless pit. Tartarus, it's called. Then, uh, we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but in Revelation chapter 9, it says that an angel descends from heaven with a key in his hand, and he goes into the earth and unlocks the abyss, unlocks the bottomless pit. And it says that smoke comes out and these angels come pouring out and it's the most horrific description you've ever heard. That They're like locusts, but they're also like scorpions. And they've got women's long hair flowing. And it says they tormented people, not permitted to die, but tormented them. There's another place in Revelation where it says that God said, go and unbind the four demons that are at the river Euphrates. That all these demons that were so evil and so heinous, God locked them up in the bottomless pit. Part of his judgment in the last day is going to say, click, and then open the gate and turn them loose on mankind again. Which goes to show, and I think that this is one of the primary things to know, when the Lord pours out his wrath on the earth, a big part of him pouring out his wrath is removing his own protection. You don't want me around? You want things your way? You don't want me intervening in your life? Fine. Here you go. And it says that these demons have a king named Apollyon. But let's start bringing this home here. You saw that Jesus, in that verse, 1 Peter 3, came and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus, apparently, when he was in the earth, went down into the prison to Tartarus, where these demons are bound, and he preached or proclaimed to them. Preach does not necessarily mean evangelism. He's proclaiming something to them. What was Jesus saying to these demons in prison? Well, let's look back at Genesis 5 and 6. You remember that the Lord told the serpent that the seed of woman is going to crush your head one day. So what do we see in Genesis chapter 6? Satan is trying to corrupt the seed of the woman. He's trying to corrupt. These, he's bringing abominable blood into the sons of Adam. It was his attempt, one of his many attempts, to cut off the line of woman, to cut off the Messiah from being born. Because if there's no one left, then no one's going to crush the head of the serpent. But we know from the genealogies that Jesus was born without any corruption. Do you again see why this genealogy matters? Because there are people that were copulating with demons at this point. So it's important for us to know that that did not continue in the line of the Messiah. And he did, in fact, crush the head of Satan at the cross, which means that one day... These demons are, I don't know what's going on in the, in the abyss. Apparently, it's not a nice place. But the door opens up and someone comes in. And instead of darkness and gloominess, this guy's shining like the sun. Who is this? I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You thought you could stop me. 
You thought you could stop God from accomplishing his plan and crushing the head of the serpent. Well, I'm here to tell you that the serpent's head has been crushed, that your time is coming, and I'm about to ascend back to my father, and I'm going to lead a host of captives with me. You're done. You're over. You lost. You failed. How cool is that? That's what's going on. That's the world that we don't see, but the Bible reveals to us. This is another stark reminder for us, you guys. Our adversaries are not flesh and blood. Our adversaries are demonic. 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul warns the Corinthians, do not be participants with demons. <laughs> That's not even possible. Yeah, it is. And the Bible warns us against that. And the last denizen of the abyss, the last person to go down into the bottomless pit is going to be Satan himself. It says that an angel comes out of the sky in the book of Revelation after Satan's had his way on earth for seven years, just wreaking havoc, showing himself to be a very, very bad king of the world, despite everything he's always wanted to do. And that angel had a great chain in his hand, and he bound the dragon. It says, that serpent of old, or you can translate it and say, that old serpent He's tied him up, threw him in the abyss, and bound him for a thousand years. And then after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, Revelation says that God opened the abyss again, and Satan came back out. And believe it or not, Satan is going to raise an army of rebels against God. But this time, it says that the Lord is going to consume them all with fire. The earth is going to get rolled up. Like a scroll, God's going to start over, and Satan is going to end up in the lake of fire with the rest of his cronies. So, let's look at it this way before we move on to the end. A lot of times we can say, oh, I love those old stories. love those old legends of the heroes and the gods and them contending with one another. And you've got to remember, even in those stories, humanity is like just trying to keep its head down and stay out of the way. If you read the Iliad, You've got a couple guys like Achilles who are half God, half man, and they're just slaughtering countless people. And all the normal human people are just trying to stay out of the way of these things. Well, this God's over here using his chess pieces, and this God's doing that. That's the way the world was. In the Psalms, the Lord actually rebukes the angelic rulers, the principalities and powers for doing this with his people. But the Lord has put a stop to that. The Lord carved out a way for humanity to live life without that. Wickedness continues to abound. Judgment day still comes. But at least we can say that this isn't happening anymore. The Lord has sheltered and protected his people and has worked since the beginning of time to make life livable for humanity. Let's read verse 5 now to the end, uh, to verse 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Wow. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So it seems like the issue with the Nephilim here was the last straw. But you can see, if there's no gaps in the genealogy, it's been 1,656 years since God created the world. And the Lord is sorry that he made, what, what did I ever do this for? 
This isn't saying God has given up and doesn't love these people anymore. It's just, you don't know how that feels in your heart. Like, what did I ever do this for? Was this a mistake? Look at, what, look at them. Look what they're doing. Look at the wickedness and how it's abounding in the world. And it says it grieved him to his heart. Do you see how we've gone from the splendor of the Garden of Eden to this nasty, rebellious, demonic activity that's going on? God is just, and God must judge sin, but God is full of compassion. He sent prophets like Enoch and Lamech, and the the New Testament refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness as well. But the spiral of sin was out of control. And you know the story. The Lord is going to use those waters to wash away. Actually, that word where it says in verse 7, I will blot out man. You could translate that, I will wash away. And that's an appropriate translation, I think, knowing what's about to happen. God's going to change the game. He's going to shorten lives. He's going to reduce the earth. He's going to make the world, in a sense, less than what it was. Apparently, there was a lot of interaction between angels and men at this point. God's going to more or less put a stop to that. He's going to shorten the lifespan of people. He's going to change the climate. He's going to spread people out intentionally. But even now, there's hope. I love verse 8, and I love that it comes at the end of that story. Noah, the son of Lamech, found favor in God's eyes, and he's going to be the one that God uses to start fresh when the flood is over. God judges sin, but in the end, there is always hope. God is patient, and he provides a way of escape. Even with all that going on, he goes, fine, 120 years. How long does it take to build an ark with this current technology? 120 years? All right, that's how long you can have. They could have repented because God is faithful. And you know, as I I said, but it's played out more in the books if you read the whole thing. The books of Peter and, and Jude draw a lot of parallels between the time we're living in now and the times of Noah before the flood. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We also are watching wickedness spiral more and more out of control. And we also know that there is a judgment that is coming. But we also have the same hope that Noah had, the hope that Enoch had, that the Lord will deliver his people out of that. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, how long can this continue before your patience runs out? Look at how awful things are. Just remember, the people were breeding Nephilim and the Lord gave them 120 years. The Amorites, the sin of the Amorites, the Lord says, I'm going to give them over 400 years to repent before I judge them. Jesus died on the cross, and ascended to heaven. And it says in Acts 17 that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. But he's given us 2,000 years and counting to repent. Because God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his evil ways and live. The day is going to come, though, when judgment will come upon the earth. And it will not be a judgment of water this time. It's going to be a judgment of fire. Water washes, but fire consumes. It says all the wicked will be consumed, angels and men both. But there is hope for those who cling to God's mercy, just like there was hope for Enoch and hope through Noah. Jesus came down and proclaimed victory to the demons that had tried to stop him from coming. He crushed the head of the serpent, and he offers life and forgiveness to everybody who believes. So this was a 
a more instructive message than anything else. These are strange passages. We want to try and bring some of these teachings together. But what can we take away from this? No matter how bad your life is, no matter how bad the news on TV, even if the worst were to happen, I'm talking nuclear war and collapse of the economy and everything else, and we're out scrounging for bread, there is still hope in Jesus Christ, no matter what. The people of God have been there before, and they've come out of it. Because he will never be overcome by the schemes of the devil. This was a scheme of Satan to ruin what God had made. And God goes, I don't think so. I'm not going to be beaten by you. In the same way, look at your life. It might be hard. It might be, it might be difficult. And it might be your fault that it's difficult. Sometimes you've got to be real honest and say, I'm in a mess and it's a mess I made. I used to think, and I was wrong to think it. I used to think, well, if something had happened to me, then God could help me. But because I'm the one that made this mess, I have no right to ask for God's help. That's a really tragic way to live if that's the way that we're going to believe. The Lord loves you, and the Lord is willing to show love to you. There is hope. You think Noah was perfect? Wait till you see what happens after the flood. I can tell you Noah wasn't perfect. But they found grace in the Lord's eyes. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have called him your Lord and Savior, if you've called on his name and said, I belong to Jesus now, all we can do is throw ourselves at the feet of the king and say, Lord, mercy, please. If you've done that, then you have hope and you have victory. So remember that there's hope and cling to it like a life preserver in the rough waters. And then do what Enoch did. Renounce the world and come walk with God so that where he is, you may be also.